Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The IRS is gearing up for this year's tax filing season. The threat of a rolling government shutdown, though, could complicate things. Congressional leaders say they've got a deal worked out to avoid that shutdown, but are looking at instead another stopgap spending bill to buy themselves more time. For more on how this all adds up, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Let's talk about the IRS and its concerns about a government shutdown, which they did publicly voice, Jory. The IRS is looking to start the filing season on January 29th. And no matter what the funding situation looks like, the plan is for them to start that filing season on time. What they are up against, however, is Congress trying to avert a two-tier government shutdown. The first deadline, the most immediate one coming up is January 19th. That would, if Congress doesn't act. That would trigger a partial government shutdown for some agencies. And for the rest of government, the other shutdown deadline would be February 2nd. And what we heard recently from IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel is that the IRS would be impacted by that second deadline, the February 2nd one. But he does say that the IRS would be exempt in some ways for filing season preparations. And he says the worry is not that the filing season would be delayed, but that it would increase the risk that they don't have as smooth a filing season as they intended. Of course, we will do everything in our power to minimize the disruptions that a shutdown would have on filing season. But as many of us have experienced who've been through government shutdowns before, if you're outside the government looking in, they can be very disruptive and very chaotic. And so I worry about the risks that the shutdown uh, presents on all IRS operations. Then that comes back to the idea of the spending bill, and it has kind of mixed results for IRS, doesn't it? Yeah, so this deal at a very high level, it agrees with the uh, the debt ceiling negotiations that transpired last year. What it would mean for the IRS is that it would speed up a timeline for already pre-agreed to spending cuts through the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS, of course, got $80 billion initially through that legislation and as part of this deal, they rolled that money back to about $60 billion for them to spend through the decade to do things like rebuild this workforce and modernize this legacy IT. And the idea was that they would split that up. They would have a $10 billion cut in 2024, and they would have a $10 billion cut in 2025. And what the latest negotiations mean is that they would just do that as one lump sum $20 billion cut. And when asked about this, Werfel said that this won't really have any immediate impact to the IRS's modernization plans the way that they've outlined them so far. But he says that it might be something that the IRS and the administration down the line would have to deal with towards the end of this decade's scope of spending. My hope is that as we demonstrate the positive impact that IRA funding is having for all taxpayers, that there will be a need and a desire amongst policymakers at that time to restore IRS funding so that we can continue the momentum that's having a very positive impact. And just to be clear, it's not really a cut that they're getting. It is the lack of boost that was promised in the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a glass half full, glass half empty situation where uh, it's not 
money that they've uh, you know tapped into at this point. It's just a narrowing of the the windfall that they were expecting. Right. So in Washington terms, that's a cut. But in normal people, that means an increase I'm not going to get. So it feels like a cut, I guess, if they had it spent already or planned on spending it. And of course, IRS is home of the National Treasury Employees Union principally. What do they say about all of this? Yeah, well, with this lead up to a potential government shutdown deadline, NTEU, they wrote a letter to congressional leaders uh, basically telling them to you know get this deal over the finish line. And the NTU president reminded them of the impact of the last government shutdown that was. This is the historic 35-day shutdown back in 2019. And what that meant was at the time, about 800,000 federal employees didn't get two of their paychecks on time and denied critical government services to the American people. You saw the kinds of things like uh, food stamps considered as something that they wouldn't be able to you know, pay out in time. And it just caused all kinds of problems, unique problems that a lot of these agencies didn't think of at the time. Right. And of course, they were at that point recovering from the fact that they were out of the office because of COVID for a couple of years and were still finding mail that hadn't even been opened. So, yeah, it does feel like it would be a setback for them not to continue on the progress they've had, say, in the past 12 months. What's new? What can we expect about this year's filing season in particular? What's Werfel saying there? Yeah, a couple things going on there. Uh, one big change for this filing season is that it will be the launch of a direct file pilot for uh, some taxpayers in some states, about a dozen states. It's limited in eligibility. Not everyone can just go ahead and sign up. It's limited to residents of about those dozen states. These are generally states that uh, don't have a state income tax, so it just is only that federal filing you have to worry about. There's some limits on what sources of income people can go ahead and do this filing with, generally reduced to uh, people who have a W-2. So people who are principally gig workers, this wouldn't be something that they could do. One other thing to look at here is that the IRS is really ramping up its digitization efforts and trying to make it easier for taxpayers if they get a letter in the mail, not having to jump on the phone and get through to the agency or send some snail mail correspondence back that they can, in fact, you know, go online and, and respond to the agency that way and get a faster turnaround. As you mentioned a moment ago, Tom, you know, that is one piece of things where the IRS still is reeling from delays is the, the paper correspondence. And that was one major pain point during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic for them. And of course, they are trying to modernize their systems. What's the latest there? One thing we have heard recently from the IRS is that after this filing season, April beyond, they are going to be working on a 2.0 version of the individual master file, kind of the engine that powers each uh, year's filing season and the file that the IRS has on every individual taxpayer. That is something that they're going to be looking at for not this year, but next year to put into practice. But this will be really the year that they look under the hood of that modernized effort and and really try to put it all together. One other thing to highlight here is that the IRS using this Inflation Reduction Act funding has beefed up its enforcement. And there is some recent updates on, on how that's 
paying out. Since last fall, the IRS has collected about $520 million in taxes owed, and this is stemming mostly from 900 cases where millionaires were not paying their full tax obligations. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The IRS has identified about 1,600 total cases of millionaires in this very situation, and revenue agents are assigned to these cases, and they're going to see what else they can uh, find as far as tax revenue that they haven't collected on. And they've also hired some people. Yeah, yeah, and not just uh, the volume of people, but how quickly they've been able to bring them on board. The IRS in late 2023, they hired about 560 skilled accountants. They highlighted one hiring event in Texas late last year where they brought about 160 of these people on board in a matter of a couple of days. That's significant because it usually takes somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six months to get these people on board. They streamlined all the hiring steps. Werfel did say that this is something that they want to really work on is get that time to hire down for all of its hires because the kinds of people that they want they can't afford to wait around months for a new job. Sounds like progress. And let's hope that money is steady and predictable. I think that's more important even than necessarily the amount. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a tiny agency aims to help libraries and museums everywhere. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.